Take it from the top. Take one. This is Within. Shifting the conversation on who is in prison. Recording within three prisons across the Colorado Department of Corrections. Denver Women's Correctional Facility. Sterling Correctional Facility. Denver Reception and Diagnostic Center. Denise Press. Andrew Drake. Terry Mosley Jr. Sean J. Marshall. Ashley Hamilton. Sarah Barry. Brett Phillips. Angel Lopez. Travis Barnes. Matthew Labonte. Here at Within, as we work to shift the conversation on who is in prison, we've asked our guests and our hosts to freely share their perspective. The opinions expressed in this podcast are strictly those of the person who gave them. Because we recorded this season virtually across so many sites, there's going to be moments where our sound quality is not as perfect as we wanted it to be. We'll ask for your understanding and let you know that we're always working to provide a wonderful listening I do. It was as we introduced our episode, The Great Divide. We talked with opinionated, honest people about today's social climate and how it's playing out in our everyday lives. Yes, Denise, I do remember that. Good. And I hope everybody listening remembers because where I'm going with this is I'm excited because all of us, our team, many other DU Pi members, many others, we meet a real life hero. He's impacting lives in so many unimaginable ways that is so current to today's issues that the fact that we got to interview him is... uh, for me like a starstruck moment but his life speaks to the power we have when we stand up for humanity but Andrew before we open this door to this epic moment in so many of our lives I gotta ask you a question and I know it's way off base but what happens when a wish comes true what happens when a wish comes true well (laughs) what happens is you become nervous and <laughs> you stumble right through an interview. You read questions right off a piece of a paper and <laughs> you still trip all over your words and become starstruck. <laughs> but uh, yeah, seriously, what happens is that you meet a fearless lawyer that has paved the way for programs like JCAP, the Juveniles Convicted as Adults program, the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative and the fighter for humanity and just overall American justice. That's that's really what happens. And what also happens is we get to share a moment in DU Pi member Trevor Jones's life as he speaks to a personal hero, the very man that fights tirelessly for juveniles who were charged and convicted as adults like Trevor was. And he fights for for these kids to have another chance at their freedom. And on top of that, what happens is you're able to get five correctional facilities together, five Colorado DLC facilities, right? Four Mile Correctional Center, Fremont Correctional Facility, Sterling Correctional Facility, Denver Women's Correctional Facility, Denver Reception and Diagnostic Center, along with Executive Director Dean Williams, uh, along with uh, Department Executive Staff and other DLC staff, majors, wardens, um, all these different interested parties. You also get a podcast team, radio station team, 
newspaper team, all produced by incarcerated people. You get all these teams together. And you also, involved in those teams, you also have people who have been incarcerated for decades, many of whom um, have been locked up since they were 16, 17, 18, 19 years old, and now they're in their 40s. You know, some of some of them have, who, who gave up on hope at one point in time. You get all these people and they all come together and they they listen to a man that has fought for them. Right. He didn't know them, but he fought for their liberty all the same. And it's it's very powerful. And now we have the listeners who are able to hear this man's life experience and hear as many truths. And you ask what happens. Right. And so what happens is we meet Brian Stevenson. Yes. I'm so excited. And you are correct. I'm glad that you remember that. Oh, I did stumble through that. But fellow DUPI inside report editor Trevor Jones, he held it down. He sure did when he was able to talk to this man. I also was included on this amazing interview along with all of you guys supporting us. But we were able to ask Brian Stevenson some some really good questions. And for those of you who are listening and for those of you who don't know who Brian Stevenson is, we're going to let him introduce himself. But just so you know, He did have an award-winning book, and also a movie was made out of his life's work. And in this episode, we get to tune in as you, Denise, and Trevor Jones, who is a personal beneficiary of Brian Stevenson's work, speak with Brian about his crusade for equal justice. Good morning, Mr. Stevenson. Morning. We're all very, very grateful to have you here. And as a personal recipient, and as one surrounded by a group of people who are personal recipients of the very hard work that you've done, I really want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart for everything that you put into your work. For our audience who might not know too much about you, would you mind introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your work? Sure. Uh, Well, first of all, it's a real honor to meet you. Anytime I meet someone who was condemned to die in prison as a juvenile and I now see them moving toward home or being home, it just does something really affirming for me. And so I just want to say to all of you who have that history, I am energized when I see you, when I meet you, when I know that you are moving towards something that people didn't think you would ever get. It just does a lot for me. So I appreciate you being in this space uh, with me. And uh, yeah, I'm a lawyer. <clears throat> I um, I actually just quickly grew up in a community where um, segregation banned kids like me from having opportunities for education. I started my education in a colored school. County I grew up in did not, uh, did not have high schools for black kids. And so my dad couldn't go to high school because there were no more high schools in that county. And then lawyers came to our community made them open up the public schools by enforcing the Supreme Court's decision in Brown versus Board of Education. And what was significant to me about that was that if you had a vote, uh, the majority of people in that county did not want kids like me going to the public school. We would have lost the vote. But because we had a right, uh, the lawyers could force the community to do something they would not otherwise do. And that's how I got to go to high school. That's how I got to go to college. And when I graduated from college, I wanted to use that same power that opened doors for me to get the education I have to help other people who were disfavored. And when I graduated from law school in the 80s, it was clear to me that the population most impacted 
by inequality and injustice uh, with this growing numbers of people going into jails and prisons. I mean, all of you all know that um, we just happen to be living at a period of time when there's been an incredible effort to put lots of people into jails and prisons. The prison population was around uh, 250,000 in the early 1970s in the United States. Now it's 2.3 million. And we finished the 20th century by investing in more police, more prisons, more prosecutors, more punishment. And that's created a crisis, I think, of injustice and inequality, of unfairness. And so uh, when I came out of law school, I wanted to do the same thing that lawyers had done for me, because I knew that in a political environment where um, elected leaders were kind of preaching what I call the politics of fear and anger, we weren't going to win big political votes so we're going to have to develop rights. And so my work has been developing rights to help uh, people who have been wrongly convicted, unfairly sentenced, unfairly judged, have an opportunity to be seen as fully human, uh, to have their dignity respected. And I, and that's the work that I do. We created an organization here in Montgomery, Alabama, called the Equal Justice Initiative. I started out just representing people on death row. And over the course of the last 30 years, that work has expanded. We began representing people suffering from mental illness. We began representing children, prosecuted as adults. We were, began talking about race issues more broadly because I think we are all burdened by our history of racial injustice in this country. And then we took on projects around poverty. And now we're doing a lot of narrative work in addition to the legal work where we're opening a museum and a memorial and the book I wrote and the movies, all of that is narrative work to try to help people understand these issues in a more fundamental way. And, uh, you know, today we have a staff that keeps fighting. I'm still in court, still representing people, you know, each week, uh, trying to protect the, 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 the rights of my clients, but more than that, trying to push this country uh, to take a more just position with regard to how we deal with people who fall down. That's incredible, sir, and it's obviously a mouthful. One of my favorite stories that you tell is when you were with some of the big leaders of the early civil rights movement, and Ms. Rosa Parks was there. And she asked you who you are and what you do, and you explained yourself and your work, and she explained that that would make you very tired. And then your friend Ms. Carr explained that that's why you need to be brave, brave, brave. And anytime I talk about your work, or with anyone about your work, they always want to know, how have you done it? How have you persevered? How have you kept through it all with all the discouragement and the setbacks, all the hardships? What made you continue to strive the way you did and get the amazing successes that you did? Well, it's a, it's a great question. I, I mean, I think for me, it, it, it's just like seeing, um, you know, reacting when you see something that's wrong, when you see something that's someone being treated improperly, unfairly, <clears throat> it's very hard if you're committed to, to, to things being right to not respond. And, and I guess that's what has sustained my work. I, I, I actually don't think it's just what we do to others. I think it's what we do to ourselves. I mean, my great criticism of what's happened in America is that for too long, our policymakers and legislators have acted as if they can put crimes in jails and prisons. And when you hear people debating about what kind of punishment to give a crime, it gets very easy to say, oh, let's 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 condemn that. Let's life without parole for that, a death penalty for that, 70 years for that, 50 years for that, 40 years for that. And our policymaking has been uh, compromised by this false belief 
that we can put crimes in jails and prisons. And what we all know and understand is you, you can't put a crime in jail or prison. You can only put people in jails and prisons. And people are not crimes. People can commit crimes and they can be held accountable for those crimes. But if you don't recognize the difference between a crime and a person, you're going to do a lot of things that are unjust. And I think what has moved me more than anything is seeing up close the unjust, unfair, cruel things we have done to people. And that just makes it hard for me to stop. You know, uh, when I'm in I'm in jails or prisons holding, you know, 13 and 14 year old kids who have been um, uh certified to stand trial as an adult and then put in adult spaces where they're being targeted and abused and mistreated. Um, you know, I can't be quiet about that. I can't be at peace with that. When I see people who have been <clears throat> ignored and treated unfairly, I just can't not respond to that. And I think that is both the burden and the gift of the legacy that I inherited here in Montgomery, Alabama. I've never forgot. I mean, what sustains me these days is reflecting on the people who've come before me. I stand on the shoulders of people who did so much more with so much less. The generation came before me in Montgomery, didn't have access to the lawyers and resources that I have access, uh, but they would still put on their Sunday best and they would go places to push for rights that they should have been given long ago. And they'd get out on their knees to pray as they advocated, knowing that they were going to get beaten and battered and bloodied while they prayed. And they still went. And the courage behind that conviction is the courage that I want to tap into. My great-grandfather was enslaved in Caroline County, Virginia, and he learned to read while he was enslaved because he believed one day he'd be free. And if you looked at Virginia in the 1850s, there was nothing rational about believing that you were going to be free. And I know that a lot of you can identify with that because many of you were told that you would never be free, but yet you had the capacity to kind of believe these things that you haven't seen. And for me, that's the gift I was given from people who had to endure. My grandmother, you know, had 10 children and uh, fled terrorism and lynching. And I used to ask her, Mama, why do you have so many kids? And she said, well, I have so much love to give. I want to give all of my love away. And uh, my mom was the youngest of her 10 kids, and we grew up poor. And my mom went into debt to buy books for us just because she wanted us to say. So for me, there is this legacy of hope that requires that I have to keep pushing. And just like um, that's what sustains many of you, you can't succeed. You can't make it when you've been condemned and incarcerated and locked up and thrown away and judged and told that your life is beyond hope and redemption. You will not survive if you do not find a hope that sustains you. And that's what sustains me. I absolutely believe that I have to sometimes be willing to stand up when people say sit down. I absolutely believe I have to sometimes be willing to speak when people say be quiet. I cannot be um, uh, denied the opportunity to advance justice when that opportunity is right. That's what for me, Micah 6 is about uh, it, it, doing justice means that we have to sometimes stand up to injustice. We have to kind of speak against inequality. We have to stand up against those who would condemn and judge and mistreat and abuse. And, um, you know, it, I think to a lot of people it seems really hard. And there are times when it is hard. You know, we 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 have difficult moments. Um, I've had difficult moments. I've had to stand next to people who are pulled away and 
placed in electric chairs and executed. Um, we're dealing with a lot of pain and anguish. We've got horrible conditions of confinement here in Alabama. There's a drug epidemic. There's a lot of violence. There's a lot of challenges. But I actually feel really privileged to do what I do. I feel honored to do what I do, to kind of affirm uh, the, uh, the humanity and the dignity of the people that I represent, the people I stand next to, to advocate for basic decency and justice is a, is a dream come true. And while it is challenging and overwhelming, and there are definitely tears, um, I, I have the great joy of um, seeing justice prevail from time to time. And there's nothing more empowering and energizing and sustaining than to see that happen. And that's really what energizes me. Thank you for that explanation. That is very inspiring. Denise. Do you have anything that you would like to add on that topic? Um, I just found that um, you spoke of the paradox. Are there any other paradoxes that you see within not only the system, but just life in general of humanity, but then condemnation? But how do you bring that out? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I mean, I think one of the things that undermines a just society is um, when people allow themselves to be disconnected from others. When I give talks, uh, I tell people that um, in America, we've created a country where it's very easy to be disconnected from the people who are needy. And, um, you know, in 2001, the Bureau of Justice projected that one in three black male babies born in this country is expected to go to jail or prison during his lifetime. The projection for Latino boys was one in six. And as devastating as that data was, what was even more devastating to me is that no one seemed to respond. We did not have a COVID pandemic-like reaction to that horrific forecast, which was going to disrupt the lives of so many. There are over 130 million Americans that have loved ones in jails and prisons. The percentage of women sent to jails and prisons over the last 25 years has gone up 800% and 80% of the women that we're sending to jails and prisons are single parents with minor children, which means that we are condemning a generation of children. And it would be one thing if we were doing that because we have to, but we're not doing that because we have to. And I think part of the problem is, is that we are not connected. We are not proximate. So when I give speeches, I talk a lot about proximity. I tell people that you have to find ways to get closer to people who are marginalized, excluded, neglected, disfavored because if you are proximate if you're not proximate you make policies and decisions that are unjust when you're proximate you hear things and see things you wouldn't otherwise hear and see and proximity is what gives us insight and and part of the challenge of corrections in america is that we've insulated these spaces we've made them not accessible there's they're not transparent there's no accountability which is why the communication things that you are doing are so vital It's hearing the voices of incarcerated people, radios, news stations, the writing. That's what changes things because it complicates this false idea that we have that the folks that are incarcerated are not really like everybody. They're not really folks. And that's the challenge that I think we have. to. And it is a paradox for a society that talks so much about freedom and equality to be so comfortable with having the highest rate of incarceration in the world. We've got 4% of the planet's population, but nearly 25% of the planet's imprisoned. And nobody seems to feel bad about that. And that's part of the reason why I think that um, we have to kind of break down this challenge that has been created by a society where people are allowed to be disconnected and comfortable. I think a second one is changing narratives. So 
you know, I think uh, our country is a country that has at times been corrupted by what I call the politics of fear and anger. When you have people preaching fear and anger, uh, you will create conditions where folks will tolerate things that they should not tolerate. They'll accept things they should not accept. If you look at world history and try to understand the worst things that people have done to one another, you have to understand the power of narratives of fear and anger. The, the, the Holocaust in Germany was a, a, a construction created by these narratives of fear and anger directed at Jewish people. The Rwandan genocide was constructed on narratives of fear and anger. Mass incarceration in America was constructed on narratives of fear and anger. In the 1980s, they declared this misguided war on drugs. They said that people who are dealing with addiction and dependency are criminals. And we're going to use the criminal legal system to respond to that. We should have said that someone dealing with addiction and dependency has a health problem. And we need a healthcare response to that problem. And there are lots of countries across the world that had a healthcare response. And today they are dealing with much lower rates of addiction and dependency. They haven't disrupted families. They've allowed people to recover. You know, the opioid overdose epidemic that we're seeing in this country is at record level. So here we are, four decades after declaring this misguided war on drugs, and more people are dying than ever as a result of, of addiction. And it wouldn't have to be that way if we were just prepared to deal honestly with the challenges that we see. And so I think that narrative work is really important to, to overcome. Uh, we want to seem tough. We want to seem strong. But when you look at our system, it's a very weak system because we haven't had the courage to acknowledge uh, the problems of trauma and mental health in American society. We've got so many children in this country born into violent families, living in violent neighborhoods, going to violent schools. And when you're a child and you're surrounded by violence and, and, and you develop a trauma disorder, just like our soldiers when they go to uh, foreign places in combat. You know, if somebody came into any one of our spaces and threatened us. Each of us would start producing chemicals. Our brains would start producing cortisol and adrenaline. And that's what we rely on to help us cope with threat. And if we eliminate that threat, it'll take a while before our brains actually get back to normal. And because some people have been exposed to more trauma than others, it might take them days or weeks before their brain chemistry got back to normal. And what happens when you're constantly being threatened, like soldiers in combat, you start producing those chemicals all the time. And so when you come home, you don't react appropriately. You're hyper-reactive. You're not healthy. You can't maintain good relationships. You are dealing with a trauma disorder. Well, that's happening to millions of children in this country that are surrounded by violence and menace and threat. Nobody's holding them. Nobody's embracing them. Nobody's encouraging them. And we have failed because we've created a non-response to that trauma epidemic. We send those children to school, and teachers treat those children like the teachers are correctional officers. The principals treat those children like the principals are wardens. And we use threat and menace to deal with a trauma problem. And we say, do this and we'll suspend you. Do that, we'll expel you. And of course, when you take somebody who's dealing with a trauma problem and you just keep threatening them and menacing them, you just aggravate the problem. And what happens when you get nine or ten and somebody says, I know exactly how you feel being threatened and menaced all the time. Here's a drug. Take this drug. And you use that drug, and for the first time in your life, you have three hours where you don't feel threatened and menaced. What do you want? You want more of the drug. If you get to 10 and 11 and somebody says, I know what you're going through. We have a gang. You should join our gang. You join the gang. And we use those decisions as further indicators that these are, quote, bad people, criminal people, instead of indicators that we are dealing with trauma untreated. 
And that's why that whole narrative has to shift. We have to understand the epidemic of trauma and mental illness that we have created by isolating people and abusing people and not dealing with people who need uh, help and care. And I just think that's got to be at the core of it. And then the last paradox that I think your question raises for me is that everybody wants to make progress, uh, but they don't want to do anything uncomfortable and they don't want to do anything inconvenient. And I just don't think there's any path to progress uh, that uh, that allows us to, to avoid doing uncomfortable and inconvenient things. You know, based on your own personal journeys, that to succeed, to get better, to get healthier, you have to do things that are uncomfortable. You have to sometimes say no when your instincts are saying yes. You have to sometimes walk away when everything is telling you don't do that. You, you have to make those choices. And I think that's true for this country. Uh, we've got 2.3 million people in jails and prisons. We could cut the prison population in half and the crime rate would not go up. We would save billions of dollars. We could invest in actually providing care and treatment of the sort that I've been describing. But that's going to be uncomfortable for some people because they've built this identity of being tough on crime. And that narrative shift has to happen. And I think for me, for more than anything, you know, I've just learned that any path to progress, any path to justice is going to require that I do things that are hard, that are inconvenient, that are uncomfortable, but that are necessary. And I think when we understand that, we can position ourselves to do things we might not otherwise do. I think that's a cool interlude, possibly into what you describe as stone catchers. And if you wouldn't mind, would you try to elaborate on what a stone catcher is and what that might look like in someone's life? Sure. I mean, I, I do think that most of us are compelled um, uh, to make a difference, to be kind. I don't think um, kindness and um, compassion are things you have to learn. I think they're things that are inside of us. I think what we're taught is that kindness makes you weak and compassion makes you weak. And so we resist that instinct. And I, I am, I really think it's important that we um, kind of overcome that. I talk about my grandmother a lot. Um, my grandmother was the daughter of people who were enslaved. Um, my grandmother was kind of the force in our family. She was the classic African-American matriarch. She was tough. She was strong. But she was kind and she was loving. And um, <clears throat> when my uh, grandmother, uh, when integration came to our community, my grandmother had never dealt with that. And so she started doing this thing when I was a little boy that she hadn't done before. She started coming up to me and she'd give me these hugs and she'd squeeze me so tightly. I thought she was trying to hurt me. And then she'd see me an hour later and uh, she'd say, Brian, do you still feel me hugging you? And if I said no, she would jump on me again. And so by the time I was 10, my grandmother taught me every time I would see her, the first thing I would say is, Mama, I always feel you hugging me. And she'd smile this smile. And I didn't appreciate what she was teaching me until much later. Uh, she lived um, into her 90s. She worked as a domestic her whole life. But when she got in her 90s, she fell one day and she broke her hip. And then she was diagnosed with cancer. And my grandmother was dying. And I went to see her. I was in college at the time. I went to see her. And I just couldn't imagine being in the world without her. I just couldn't. And uh, they told me this was going to be my last conversation. And I sat down next to her. Her eyes were closed. She wasn't really responding. But I just persuaded myself that if I kept talking, she couldn't die. And so I started talking and started talking and started talking. And I know I was making everybody worry because I just wasn't going to leave. And then I, it dawned on me that I couldn't talk forever and I was going to have to leave and it broke my heart 
But I stood up and I was about to take a step away. And that's when my grandmother opened her eyes. Uh, and then she squeezed my hand and she looked at me. And the last thing she said to me, she said, Brian, uh, do you still feel me hugging you? And then she said, I want you to know I'm always going to be hugging you. And I didn't appreciate the power of those words until I got much older. But there have been times in my life when I have felt my grandmother's embrace. For me, being a stone catcher means being someone who gets close enough to people who are struggling, who gets close enough to people who have fallen down, who gets close enough to people who are vulnerable, who are losing their way, losing their hope, losing their coaching, to get close enough to people that we can wrap our arms around them and affirm their humanity and their dignity. And I think we have grossly underestimated uh, the power we each have to affirm someone's humanity and dignity. Something Sometimes there is nothing more important that we can do to affirm one another's humanity and dignity. And the concept of a stone catcher is a reference to the parable that Jesus tells where he is confronted uh, by those who are constantly trying to trap him. And they say to him, Master, this woman was caught in adultery. And, and we were trained to, that, that we should stone her to death for her sin, for her crime. And, uh, and Jesus basically says to them something that they're not expecting he says, well, let whoever is among you that is without sin cast the first stone. And they're convicted by that because they realize that none of them are without sin. And then they walk away. And then, of course, Jesus says to the woman, I do not condemn you. Just go and sin no more. And it is a parable, but it is a model of the kind of justice, the kind of compassion, the kind of relationship to one another it breeds a healthier community. And because we have become unhealthy in this country, um, now what happens when that same question is asked, let he is without sin cast the first stone, people pick up their rocks and they start throwing stones. To condemn people to death in this country as we have done is to throw the stone, even though we are without sin. The death penalty is not a question that can be decided by asking whether people deserve to die for the crimes they've committed. The threshold question is, do we deserve to kill? And we have a legal system that treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. We have a legal system where we know we make lots of mistakes. For every nine people we've executed, we've identified one innocent person on death row. It's, a, it's an unbelievable rate of error. And yet we still try to execute people. If somebody said, you know, one out of nine apples has a toxin on it, that if you touch that apple, you will die immediately, nobody would sell apples. We would not even allow people to grow apples. We would react to that error, that threat. But we continue to execute people despite that phenomena. And, 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 and I just think that that's people throwing the stones, even though uh, they were at, are without sin. And so I now feel like it's not enough uh, to understand that parable. We actually have to catch the stones. Uh, I, I don't think... Uh, Jesus would have stood by and watched the woman stoned to death. And I think we are now called to react, uh, to, to kind of catch those stones. Because when we catch those stones, we cause people to think more about who is throwing the stone and who's being hit. And I'm just persuaded that uh, in a society like ours where we too easily hate, too easily hurt, too easily judge, too easily condemn, there had to be people who stand up and say, I don't hate anybody. I'm not going to judge. I'm not going to condemn. I am going to actually uh, push for 
for this kind of, 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 of justice that is rooted in love. The, I, I start my book with a quote from a theologian, Reinhold Niebuhr, and he says that love is the motive, uh, but justice is the instrument. Uh, I don't hate anybody. I, I just, I don't. And I'd love to see everybody be in healthy, human, full relationships where love defines how they get through the world. It sounds kind of silly to some people, but I know I'm sustained by the love of other people. I know that. And so for me, it is necessary to catch the stones because I don't want the person who's being thrown at to be killed or condemned. But I also want that person who threw that stone to have another chance to reflect on whether that's the right act, whether that's the moral act, whether that's the just act. I mean, in many ways, a lot of my work is really, it's for my clients, obviously, but it's for this whole country. Because when we condemn unjustly, when we actually execute, when we throw children away, what we've done in so many ways, we condemn ourselves. We make ourselves less than we should be. And I just think that's why stone catching becomes a moral imperative in a nation uh, where people are constantly throwing rocks at one another. Thank you, sir. Denise, do you have anything that you would like to add on that? Uh, yeah, because, Brian, you used words like phenomena and crisis and diagnose that we're unhealthy as a country. If we have the diagnosis and connection might be the treatment, how do we begin that? Besides just the narratives, besides just the work. Yeah. Any advice? Yeah, yeah no, it's a, great, it's, a, it's a great question. I mean, I do think um, that making people aware of the problem is the first step because until you have a diagnosis you're not going to do the things that need to be done i mean i'm doing a lot of work now on race and racial injustice and we have not actually been required to admit or acknowledge how um, contaminated our country has become by this long history of racial injustice I don't think you can live in Colorado or California or Mississippi or wherever you live in this country, you live in a space where the atmosphere has been contaminated by 400 years of racial injustice. There are toxins in the air. There are pollutants in the air that create division. And um, we're not healthy as a consequence. And um, I believe some people have argued that eventually these toxins will dissipate. I don't think that's true. I think we're going to have to actually change this environment. And so we have to then talk about things. We have to understand what the problem is. And the problem is, is that we have all inherited this narrative of racial difference that was created when Europeans came to this continent. We, and we haven't talked about things that we have to talk about. So I'm saying the first thing we have to do is talk about those things. So I think we have to acknowledge that we are a post-genocide society. Mm. I think what happened to indigenous people when Europeans came to this continent was a genocide. We killed millions of native people through famine and war and disease. We made them leave their lands, but we kept their words and, and we kept their lands, but we made the people go and millions died. And we wrote a declaration of independence that's envied all over the world. We wrote a constitution that's envied all over the world, but we did not apply those concepts of equality and justice for all to indigenous people because we said, no, those native people, they're different and their racial difference excluded them from the protections that we fought so dearly for. And it was that narrative of racial difference that th then was used to justify two and a half centuries of slavery. And I don't think the great evil of American slavery was involuntary servitude and forced labor. The real evil of American slavery was the narrative we created that, uh, that, that black people aren't as good as white people. And slavers didn't want to feel unmoral or unjust or unchristian. So they had to create this false narrative, this ideology of white supremacy, 
to justify enslavement. So they said black people are less capable, less worthy, less deserving. And that narrative was the true evil. And we fought a civil war, and the North won the civil war, but the South won the narrative war. And so after the civil war, we still were dealing with that narrative. And for 100 years, black people were pulled out of their homes, brown people pulled out of their homes, beaten, tortured, lynched. We created laws all over the country that prohibited interracial marriage, that required racial hierarchy. We had a civil rights movement, but we're still dealing with this narrative. And today, you can be a lawyer or a doctor, a correctional officer, a teacher. You can be whatever you want to be. But if you're black or brown, you'll go places in this country where you're going to be presumed dangerous and guilty. And when you have to navigate a presumption of dangerousness and guilt, I will tell you, it gets exhausting. And so what I'm saying is that we have to understand what we are dealing with. And because we haven't talked about these things, we haven't made the progress we need to make. In South Africa, after apartheid, there was a commitment to truth and reconciliation. In Germany, if you go to Berlin, there are markers and, and monuments everywhere to help people reckon with the history of the Holocaust. You can't go 100 meters in, in Berlin without seeing that. And because of that, there are no Adolf Hitler statues in Germany. It would be unconscionable for someone to say, oh, let's celebrate uh, and romanticize the perpetrators of the Holocaust. But I live in a region where the landscape is littered with iconography dedicated to romanticizing those who were the defenders of enslavement and the perpetrators of white supremacy. And so what I'm saying is that we have to know what's wrong with us because, and, and you know, people don't like it when you talk sometimes about these things. They don't. But if you go to the doctor uh, and 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 you have high blood pressure or you have diabetes or God forbid you have cancer, you need the doctor to tell you the truth about that because if you don't get the truth, Nobody's going to just say, oh, I want chemotherapy. Oh, I want radiation. I want to take medicines that make me sick without knowing why. And that's why the diagnosis is so critical. And, and I do think that's the fundamental step. You know, if we're trying to advance justice uh, and we're putting people in jails and prisons who are not a threat to public safety, we have to ask the question, well, why are we putting somebody in jail or prison who's not a threat to public safety? And, and, and what else could we do? We spend... $87 billion a year on jails and prisons. And just think what we could do with that money to create pathways to keep people out. We've made no investments to rehabilitation, to response, to, to correction, to trick care and treatment. And so I think we have created these spaces that are reinforcing, you know, power that punishes, power that condemns, power that judges, power that excludes, power that neglects. And that's not a healthy way forward. And there's a better way. And there are models out there. And so I think once we get the diagnosis, people will be motivated to do things they wouldn't otherwise do. They'll be prepared to, to kind of do hard work that they won't otherwise uh, do. But I think that we are still at that stage. We're getting people to understand what the problems are. I'm representing, so we got 13 states that have no minimum age to try children as adults. 13. So in Florida, is one of the states. So I sometimes represent 9- and 10-year-old children we're facing 50 and 60 year prison sentences in adult facilities. Some of my clients, Ian Manuel, 13 years old, sentenced to life without parole. Joe Sullivan, 13 years old, sentenced to life without parole. These are for non-homicide offenses, 13 years old. And um, I'm trying to get people to understand that, that not only is that not adjust, it's, it's irresponsible. Right. It's just not something you can reconcile with a just society. Uh, but until they meet these young people, until they see they're they're comfortable. And that's why that 
condition has to be articulated, it has to be defined, it has to be addressed. So many of the policies are just misguided. Why are we putting people in jail and prison for minor property crimes? It makes no sense. I've got, I've got, we've got three strikes laws. I've got clients doing life for writing a bad check for $90. And because it was their fourth or fifth offense, our habitual felony offender laws don't look at the category of crime. So we're going to put somebody in prison at $30,000 a year for the next 40 years for writing a bad check for $300. Whose interests are we serving? It would be so much better to say, oh, you just have to pay back that $300. But now we're going to spend, so we're actually taking more from taxpayers if you just want to use a kind of a shrill economic analysis. But we don't have the space to talk about those things in that way. And that's why creating this environment is so important. And so I do think the diagnosis is the hard part. And once we get that out there, people are just motivated to do the things that we know can work. You know, we have care protocols and treatment protocols to help people deal with addiction. We have care protocols to help people deal with trauma. We have care protocols that can help people deal with many of the mental illnesses that are frequently associated with behavioral challenges. Uh, we know that education can be transformative. I'm somebody who's a witness to that. My parents couldn't go to college. I could, and I had opportunities that they couldn't have, but that's because I had an opportunity for education. So I think that's the part where things get a little bit easier. The hard part is the struggle we're making over diagnosis. You talk about our country's legacy of racial injustice and how power can come down hard on those who are more vulnerable. Obviously, the Equal Justice Initiative has fought very hard for such people including Sullivan and Emanuel. And you fought for Miller and Jackson, which took the mandatory life sentences of life without parole off of the table for people like me and my friends. Another very important case for us is the Henry Montgomery case out of Louisiana, which retroactively applied Miller and Jackson for all states. Just last week, Henry Montgomery, after 57 years, was released. And I wonder, how does that make you feel and do you feel like that's kind of the culmination, or at least one of the culminations, of your work? And I'd also like to ask if you've actually seen the picture that's online of him walking out of prison with the hugest smile that you could ever see, and if you thought that this is one of the most beautiful things in the world. Yeah, no, I absolutely did see that. Uh, I, in fact, I'm getting pictures almost every day. I've got pictures of him having his first uh, free world meal at a restaurant, eating a hamburger. I've got pictures of him <laughs> eating ice cream. And I get a lot of that. And it's incredibly affirming. Um, and, and yeah, it, it does make me hopeful. But we still have a lot more work to do. You know, I think from the Miller cohort now, uh, our count is that it's almost a thousand people have been released who were sentenced to die in prison um, uh, when they were juveniles. And to know that those folks are out in the world is incredibly affirming. But there are still many more uh, who have yet to have that. And so we have to keep working until that happens for everybody. And I think the beautiful thing for me is you know, I, I see what um, Henry Montgomery and all the other folks who get released represent, not just as um, the advance of justice for this population of people who've been condemned when they were children, but I actually see it as, you know, a step toward protecting all children. Because what happened in the 80s when we had criminologists going around saying that some kids aren't kids, and that's what happened. You know, we had these criminologists going around arguing that there were some children who look like kids and sound like kids and act like kids, but they're not really kids. And they use these labels to demonize some kids, poor kids. 
uh, kids of color, other kids. And they said, these children aren't children. They said, these are, quote, super predators. And they used that label. And that's what resulted in every state lowering the minimum age for trying children as adults. It happened in Colorado. It happened all over the country. And we began putting children in adult jails and prisons. We condemned children. I've represented kids who were sentenced to death by execution. And, and I think it was so destructive because it also facilitated this larger world where we gave up on lots of children. That's how the schoolhouse and jailhouse pipeline was created. We started putting kids in handcuffs. We're doing things that my generation did routinely. And we were quick to condemn. They'd make a judgment about you. So oh, that kid is bad. Let's get him into a facility as soon as we can. And that thinking has condemned not only the people who are currently trying to get out after life without parole sense, but a whole generation of children. And so for me, this work is about just reasserting the very basic idea that all children are children. I genuinely believe that. I don't think this country will be a healthy country. No, I don't think we have a future. If we do not correct this false idea that some children aren't children, I think all children are children. For me, uh, America is going to be judged not by how well it treats talented kids and gifted kids and privileged kids. I think we're going to be judged by how we treat poor kids, abused kids, neglected kids, kids we condemned into jails and prisons. And so for me, yes, Henry Montgomery is a triumph of a certain sort, but we have to, we have to insist on more. I want every child who was condemned uh, to be free. And, and I think that, and I do that not because I'm indifferent uh, to, to crime and violence. You know, my grandfather was murdered when I was 16. I've seen too much violence. I hate violence. I'm not indifferent to the cost of, of what happens, but I am also persuaded that we will not get to safer places, to healthier communities, if we do not understand the critical urgency of being just always, being fair always, uh, being compassionate always. And what we have done by condemning uh, juveniles to life without parole is the opposite of just. It's the opposite of compassion. It is the opposite of fair. And we have to correct that. We have to create these opportunities. And uh, I'm energized by uh, what happened with, with, with Henry Montgomery. And uh, we, had, we had a client who was sentenced to, to receive a reduced sentence last week. And uh, he's going to be released soon. And always that energizes me. But it still makes me aware that we've got a lot more work to do, right? A lot more work to do. Denise, I know that that was kind of specific to me and my friends' situation. Is there anything that you'd like to ask? I just, I have nothing. I'm just, I'm just in awe right now. And I'm just, I continue to push energy towards you. And I'll be on this side fighting on the inside, trying to change people's minds too about us. Thank you. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you for that. Please know I am cheering for you and all of the women and men inside um, to collectively kind of show this nation that we can do better. We are better. And anything I can do to help and advance that, I'll certainly try my best. Mr. Stevenson, I just want to say thank you so much for everything, sir. You saved our lives, plain and simple, and we are filled with gratitude. So thank you, sir. When Brian said, I can't want for me what I am prepared to deny you, it rings within my soul about the gravity of what he's saying in that statement. But I also What what are you hearing when he said that? Like what did you what did you actually hear? What I hear is criminal justice reform. And when I say that, I hear restorative justice. I hear I hear victims 
who need to be honored, but also holding holding people and lives at the forefront of when crime happens. And I hear a lot of people that may be of the historical thought that criminal justice reform means you need to be hard on crime. But Brian also said it in the interview, is we have put crimes in prison. But that's not what we're doing. We're putting human beings in prison. And there is a complex, comprehensive approach that we have to take to that. And um, I'm sure if we interviewed him for a lot longer, we would have gotten to more of that other work in the restorative justice practices that we all need to take part in. But criminal justice work does not mean we soften on crime. What it means we do is we take a 360 approach to honoring victims, understanding the harm, but also understanding why people perpetuate crime and why harm has happens and how do we how do we heal from that? How do we heal? Mm. That's a difficult question because it's not a question that really one person can answer. In my opinion, Healing and the possibility of healing is a thing that has to be taught and learned. Um, healing is something that we as a society have to really, really believe is a possibility. Um, I can't and I really won't speak for others, but from my experience, uh, I can recall when I was the victim of a crime. You know, I was violently robbed at gunpoint and I distinctly remember wanting to see this person you know this person that robbed me i wanted to see this person suffer like forever i wanted to see them just continuously be in a state of discomfort and i remember thinking that but as i continue to live my life and more and more people and their harm and their trauma entered into my consciousness i i really began to understand that we all have been harmed. Yeah. That we all have harmed others. And not one person, you know, not one human being alive should be thrown away. Nor should one human being alive. We should never take for granted their experience. We should never take for granted what they've been through or their life. Right. And I know that on the surface, that is a tough pill to swallow because traditionally in our country, We've dealt with harm in a very specific way. And that is we've taken the punishment approach. But it's my opinion that that approach is systemically flawed. And if you think about it, right, it's uh, it's 2022 and we're roughly, what, 60 years removed from the tough on crime administration of President Nixon, (laughs) who ironically was a criminal. (laughs) But if that tough on crime If that approach worked, our country would have seen a significant decrease of crime and incarceration rates in the past five or six decades. But that isn't the case. Right. We're not healing as a whole. And to me, it just it just seems to be lock them up and forget about them. You know, get the criminals as far away from the normal folk as possible. And that is the reason, you know, that that right there, that's the reason that prisons are in the far reaches of each state and in the far reaches of our country. And and that's that's just where that's just where they are. They are, Andrew. I'm going to because remember when Brian said it's about proximity, 
because historically that is what we have done is we have pushed the other people away that we don't know what to do with them because we feel that's safe, right? Put them at a distance and then we are safer. And statistics have, have shown, and you said 60 years from, from when Nixon got tough on crime, that things would, would change. And instead, crime rates have actually increased over you know decades. They have. So I think that that's... I hope that people listening to this interview and listening to us have this conversation understand that we're really trying to just open the thought process and open up belief systems that have put us into these places where 13, 10-year-old, 9-year-old, 8-year-old children are, are going to prison for life. I think that that impacts us as a society. And then I also know for myself, I am a child of a father who went to prison. And so... There we go. Here's a system. Criminal justice affected my life and affected my family because my father was incarcerated when I was young. You know, so this becomes a societal issue. And I think that that's what we have to start. I, I want people to start understanding that, that crime, crime is an issue that comes from our societal ills that we are unaddressing. And I think we are having those hard, hard conversations within our team. And I hope people listening to us, incarcerated or free on the street, driving down the road, in your grocery store, I hope you understand that you need to start having these conversations at your dinner table with, the, with your father, with your mother, with your daughter, with your son, about really what are, we, what are we trying to solve when crime happens? Are we trying to really honor victims and the harm, or are we trying to throw crime in prison? And when we do that, we continue to hurt the society because, as we've all talked about on here, we all walk around in our trauma. And I think if we start at that base, then we can start healing from there. And then it makes, when crime happens and unthinkable things happen, it makes it make a little sense. Because I'm sure a lot of victims walk around going, why? Why did they do that? Why did they hurt me? Or why did they take from me? And I think that if we can get to that that little bit of a seed, then we start understanding a little bit more and maybe there's less confusion and less anger. Because I know for myself, when I'm confused, I do become angry because I want answers. Sadly, we all can't have answers. Correct. But what we can do, uh, what is in our power to do, is to make the decision to not harm people. Make the decision to be responsible for our own actions and make the daily decision to be socially responsible for any and all people that we come across. But within season two, we have our resident poet, William S. Graham from the Denver Reception and Diagnostic Center back with us in the virtual room. In all of our interviews, Will sits, listens, and then crafts an individualized poem for each interview. Here's Will. Mercy and trust. Granted, a burden and a gift. Yet, I still lift and uplift hope with hands unknown. Pushing against a will of injustice and brokenheartedness. Telling people what is truly shown. Blown away by our lack of connection. Marching toward hope in the oddest way. Searching for the proper direction. And what to say. Aggression or a blessing. A problem? Life leaves us all guessing. Are we trying to make sense of it all? Are we talking big but thinking small? Do we stand up at first only to be pushed down and fall? 
I call that a comfortable solution instead of a positive resolution. Growing wild as flowers do on the back road. Looking, better yet, searching for a hand to hold us. Saying no matter what, you are held and seen by mercy and trust. For more content, music, poetry, and visual art, look deeper within at thisiswithin.com. Within is Ashley Hamilton, executive producer, Andrew Draper, co host, Denise Presson, co host, Terry Mosley, producer, Angel Lopez, media production and creative support, William S. Graham, Denver Complex creative consultant, Sean Marshall, associate producer, Travis Barnes, creative music producer, Matthew Labonte, Segment co-host, Brett Phillips, segment co-host. Within is a collaboration between the University of Denver Prison Arts Initiative and the Colorado Department of Corrections. Thank you for listening and choosing to look within. Whatever happened to the revolution, Screaming hands up, please don't shoot us. But when we done marching, we can come loot us. Somehow behind Jesus, just to turn to us. Cause all lives matter when he comes to it. New plantations with the same rulers. Slaves wearing chains, we exchange jewelers. Black lives matter, but you can't fool us. Cause every shooter in my hood is black like me. Throwing up gay signs, wearing bandanas. But they should be on horseback wearing white sheets. If you listen, my mission is the evidence. Why no one marching down here where we live? We're black and kill more blacks than the white seven dirt. And the seven king, the president's for owning us. But on the level, man, the devil isn't Donald Trump. It's because we were from seeking, we should love a We're gunning each other down, cause we're where we're from. Hands up, don't shoot me, I can't breathe. What is it about me? I can't see. We are George Floyd under God's knees. What is being let go cost me? Hands up, don't shoot me, I can't breathe. I'm stuck inside a world that I can't leave. We all like food on the cold streets. We make even afraid of the police. Bet you wonder why they're scared. Oh. I bet you wonder why they're scared. Do you wonder why they're scared? Oh. I bet you wonder why they're scared.